This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not contain or replace any legal advice. Hello and welcome to Maddox on the Mic. You're listening to Watchdog, where we'll be discussing the ACCC's policy, regulatory and enforcement activity last year, including 2020's leading cases. We'll also discuss the ACCC's long-sought changes to the unfair contract protections in the Australian consumer law. My name is Sean Temby. I'm a partner in the dispute resolution and litigation team at Maddox. Uh, I'm also the editor of our annual ACCC Year in Review publication. I'm pleased to say that joining me today are two, uh, two of my colleagues, Greg Hipwell and Fiona Woolwork. Both Fiona and Greg have extensive experience in the consumer markets and franchising space and spend considerable amount of their practice advising Australian manufacturers, wholesalers and retailers, as well as international companies in the Australian retail and franchise sector. Fiona and Greg, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for having me, Sean. Pleasure to be here, Sean. So I mentioned a moment ago in the introduction our ACCC year in review and uh, one of the topics that we cover in that publication this year as we have every year is retail and franchising. There's been a lot going on in franchising in terms of regulation and enforcement uh, and I'm wondering whether you've got a comment on that Greg as to why franchising has been such an area of focus for the ACCC. I think part of the reason for that is that a lot of the media coverage that franchising's had in the last three or four years um, a lot of it um, not particularly complementary to the industry. And I think part of the reason why it's always newsworthy is if you have small business people, mums and dads, you know, working families effectively coming into hard times or a perception that they've lost a lot of money and there's someone else to blame, then that's always a newsworthy story. And like it or not, you know, I guess one of the um, realities of franchising is that not all franchisees succeed and some of them don't succeed at all and spectacularly fail so i think for so long as you've got a system whereby people can come in and invest money and lose a lot of money and effectively have life-changing or life-ruining experiences it's going to attract a media attention and b it's going to attract the regulators to make sure that the industry is properly regulated and you know consumers and small business people are looked after And it's not just the press. Uh, We also saw a lot of time and attention being paid to this at a federal level with the Senate inquiry, focusing on a lot of the same issues, of course. I mean, that's got to have driven some of the the press attention, but also the ACCC's attention as well, I guess. Well, I think think the fact that it is a sort of politically relevant sector means it's, it's, you know, the issues that arise are always newsworthy. And yes, again, when people have the ability to invest large sums of money and lose large sums of money and don't always have, I guess, adequate remedies or address via the ACCC or through the courts, then they tend to start complaining to their local members of parliament. And then what we've seen is we've seen some some senators and some uh, some other members of parliament take this up on, bo- on both sides of politics for their constituents. And um, I think that's brought about the most recent Senate inquiry and it's, it's brought about the myriad inquiries we've had since 1998 when the code first came in. I think it, it continues to be and, and will be politically relevant. We discussed this, I recall, last year when the Senate inquiry published its findings, the Fairness in Franchising report. And there seemed to be this heavy emphasis that franchisors almost needed to guarantee the success of anyone buying into their franchise systems. And it was almost this this misunderstanding at 
um, the, the level of politics in, in the Senate inquiry about really how franchising works. I mean, this is a, an area that's been the subject of so many reviews over the years. It's surprising that, you know, that, that understanding of how franchising works still seems to be lacking at a federal level. I think that's right. I mean, I certainly felt there was a sentiment that the regulators wanted or were angling at franchisors having to underwrite the success of franchisees. And as we all know, even even though you wrap a franchise around it, any franchise business is effectively just an independently operated business. And many of them start from scratch and they go out and they, you know, they're that they're they're established in on Gren, in Grenfell's locations, and you know there's no absolute guarantee of success. The reality is, though, you wrap a franchise model around a small business, and it's got you know probably eighty percent more chance of succeeding than if you don't. But anecdotally, you know, there's probably still fifteen or twenty percent of franchise businesses that fail when they're established in Grenfell sites, and and it's 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 unavoidable. Should that always be the the um, responsibility of the franchisor? The answer, from my perspective, is it has to be no. Franchisors have to be responsible. They have to operate within you know properly regulated guidelines, but they ought not be responsible for underpinning or guaranteeing the success of all the franchisees. I think I think it would just bring it into the industry because there has to be some risk sharing. That's why the system works. I think the the Senate inquiry did have a lot of interesting things to say about that imbalance of power between franchisors and franchisees, but it also shed some light on some practices that um, have been the subject of a lot of media criticism, but also complaints from franchisees. And I mean, there was a whole chapter dedicated to retail food group, a whole chapter in the Senate inquiry's fairness and franchising report. Mm. And last year, you know, I mean, some of those some of those allegations were quite serious, and a number of them have now been taken up by the ACCC in some proceedings commenced right at the end of last year. Financial disclosures on store changeover and also marketing funds are the subject of that litigation. What, what are your thoughts on that and on, and on the what the ACCC have chosen to focus on, Greg? If those allegations are proven to be true, then absolutely retail food group should be held to account. If they've presided over a situation where they're aware that a, that a site has become on like a store or an outlet's become unviable or marginal and they've engaged in some sort of misleading and deceptive conduct in terms of presenting the past financial performance of those stores to an incoming franchisee who's looking to purchase the site. If they're guilty of misrepresentation in those circumstances or negligent as to their, their conduct at which amount to misrepresentations in those circumstances, then yes, absolutely, they should be held to account. I don't think that should, should have been the impetus for any regulatory change, though, because we've already got adequate provisions in the Australian Consumer Law which which deal with those issues. And and those provisions are what the ACCC will be relying on to go after retail food group. I mean, marketing funds have long been a vexed issue. Fiona, you've advised many, many different franchise businesses on how to properly manage their marketing funds. Do you think it's still an area where people are getting it wrong? Yes, definitely. I think a lot of a lot of franchisors are much more aware of their obligations, especially following, you know, the report and some of the recent prosecutions of companies. But time and time again, I look at what uh, franchisors do with managing their marketing funds and there's um, you know, errors and a general misunderstanding about the requirements. Some basic things are often missed, including you know having separate bank accounts uh, for marketing fund uh, monies, um, not preparing uh, the statements correctly, not providing the information that's required to be provided, that sort of thing. You see that 
those issues pop up time and time again? Well, I think one of those companies that was subjected to those fines in relation to marketing funds last year, or at least the fine was confirmed last year, was Ultratune. They were fined $2 million following the appeal of um, the original decision of the trial judge. And that was that concerned their failure to provide sufficient detail in, in marketing fund statements. I, while it wasn't really a, a topic of the ACCC year in review this year, do you think that case took people by surprise, Fiona, in terms of the level of detail the courts required for marketing fund statements? I think it did take people by surprise. Certainly when you look at the judgment and the expectations in terms of what information, what is meant by meaningful information that needs to be provided, I think that was perhaps more ex- extensive than what you know everyone originally thought. But then when you look, when you go back and look at the whole point of providing the information, the whole point of the disclosure requirements, you go, well, actually, it probably makes sense. You know, this is a hot topic area. And I think the level of information that is provide, that needs to be provided is actually very important. And that's sort of where we're moving to, to nowadays, you know, seeing financial statements have been prepared by accountants, which are all well and good, but actually then providing really meaningful information going down by line by line item explaining what I've said in the past, you know, expenses sort of hidden within line items are not making much sense. That's sort of moving away, which is, I think, a good thing. Now, in terms of the uh, the Fairness and Franchising report and the, the changes that are being proposed in that report, we've obviously the working group went away and took some of the, the recommendations from the Senate of Inquiry. Uh, I don't think it's a secret, but I thought some of the recommendations out of that Senate of Inquiry report were really harebrained. But fortunately, the working group, including representatives from Treasury and from the ACCC, took some of the ideas behind the suggestions from the Senate inquiry and applied them in a much more practical and business-like setting. Greg, some of the main changes that are, that are coming out of the, um, the Senate inquiry and that uh, we're likely to see in the Code of Conduct this year, are you able to comment on, on those? There was, a, um, there was an exposure draft released late last year of the proposed broader changes to the Code which are slated to come in 1 July this year in 2021. Previous to that, there were some changes made to the code specific to the motor vehicle industry that came in last June. And they weren't far-reaching changes, but they dealt with things along the lines of having to give a greater period of notice of non-renewal, for example. Going through the exposure draft that's sort of more broadly going to relate to franchising, there's some things in there which, which are improvements, but I also think there's a lot of well, there's there's some of the changes they're making to the code are going to make it um, more complicated to read, and I'm not sure that there's there's going to be any positive or real change. And, and what I mean by that is there's a there's a whole new dispute resolution process and provisions that they are incorporating, and they talk a lot about arbitration between the parties. They don't define what they mean by arbitration. They don't impose a set of rules for arbitrations to take place by. And then you get to the very end of it and arbitration is is entirely optional. So if one of the parties doesn't want to arbitrate, then you don't even get to arbitration. So you're still really back at the back where we started with there's mandatory non-binding mediation. Well, we had a private members bill was introduced in the Senate last week to, um, to to change that optional arbitration to compulsory arbitration. I'm not quite sure where that's gotten to, but I mean, I find this whole emphasis on arbitration as an effective form of dispute resolution is quite, I find it curious. 
because as a dispute resolution lawyer myself, my experience with arbitration is it's not quicker, it's not cheaper, and certainly there aren't any guarantees of either of those things. And the other thing, of course, is that it's private. One of the criticisms of dispute resolution in the Senate inquiry was that a lot of these disputes were resolved confidentially with deeds of settlement with strict confidentiality terms. And arbitration is by its nature private. So you have this inconsistent emphasis being placed by Mm -hmm. the Senate recommendations to we don't want these things to be private we can't let large franchise systems you know get away with doing these things confidentially and privately and yet they're also recommending arbitration that to me just sounds seems to be really inconsistent so i thought that was a strange recommendation i think what we have to remember is when there is a a senate inquiry it's it's not a royal commission it's not a court it's not a forum that's populated by lawyers at all the, the committees are generally senators or members of parliament who are conducting the inquiry, and it's very much done in layman's terms. And people come to the inquiry, The generally the, the committee has some sort of political agenda that's running as well. So when Senator O'Neill, for example, in the, um, in the Holden or the Motor Vehicle Senate inquiry, talks about the requirement or the benefits of arbitration, I don't think she's thinking like we are as lawyers. I don't think she's thinking that there has to be a very formal set of rules for the introduction of evidence and experts and those sorts of things. It's just a personal view, but I think when people think arbitration in that context, they're thinking about more of a binding mediation process. Mm. So you avoid the cost of putting together large documents containing evidence and there's a, a an abridged time frame. People essentially put a detailed position paper and they sit before an individual who has the ability to sort of reach some sort of binding ruling. How that would ever work in practice, I don't know, but I I think that's where a lot of the people who talk about arbitration are coming from. Now, Fiona, one of the big recommendations, one of the the areas of focus for the Senate Inquiry report was on more disclosure. I know you've prepared more disclosure documents than I've had hot breakfasts. And do do you think more disclosure is going to to improve franchising? I think more meaningful disclosure. You work through a disclosure document and you any number of um, items that you have to disclose information on and a lot of it is repetitive, potentially um, confusing. It's very difficult for a franchisor to even complete uh, a lot of the information that's required and then what you end up with is a document that really doesn't perhaps always hit on the real issues that franchisees need to be aware of. So I don't think more disclosure is necessarily the right way to go, but I think, you know, finding ways to give more meaningful information to franchisees and getting them to understand what they're buying, the contractual rights that they're buying, their obligations, um, things like that is what's what's critical here with disclosure. One of the other big changes that we're going to see in the retail and franchising space this year is the introduction of uh, some changes to the unfair contract terms regime. Are you able to provide us with some background on that, Fiona? As most people are aware, there have been unfair contract terms laws in play for a number of years now, and those laws have been a a high focus for the ACCC, mostly because they've been concerned that those laws haven't really been that effective to ensure that businesses don't include what are perceived to be unfair contract terms in standard form contracts. So a lot of issues been raised and commentary raised by the ACCC about those laws. There was a, a review conducted throughout 2019 and 20 
which resulted in the Fed, uh, Federal Treasury Enhancements to Unfair Contract Terms Protections Regulations Impact Statement that listed a whole lot of recommendations, changes to those laws to address some of the ACCC's concerns. And in particular, those recommendations talk about casting a wider net of the kinds of contracts that should be bought by the unfair contract terms, much wider net that currently is the case. And to also to um, impose uh, sanctions or penalties or real consequences on businesses uh, where they fail to comply with these laws or they include unfair contract terms in their contracts. Now, at the moment, where these new laws aren't in play, we haven't even seen a bill uh, which sets out what these new laws may be. But there are some recommendations that you can look at that are flowing from that report, which look like will be included in the new legislation. And as you and as you sort of mentioned before, Sean, one of those uh, recommendations are increased sanctions and in particular increased or the imposition of penalties, financial penalties, similar to other breaches of the Australian consumer law for where a business does have a unfair contract term. Fiona, we've had unfair contract terms for a number of years, both in business to consumer, but also business to business contracts. Uh, are we starting to get an idea about the sorts of terms that the ACCC is concerned about? I think we are. Obviously, the law, the law itself at the moment anyway, doesn't set out what terms are unfair contract terms. But there is certainly guidance issued by the ACCC, and you can see from some of the um, investigations and prosecutions by the ACCC in terms of what kinds of terms may be, or at least pose a risk of being unfair contract terms. And there are things like, you know, automatic renewal clauses, penalties for early termination of contracts, terms that give one party rights to vary key terms under the contracts, things like that. Uh, you know, wide indemnity clauses, all those sorts of things are looked as being an unfair contract term. That's not to say that those sorts of terms always are going to be unfair contract terms because it does come down to a question whether the term is shown to be reasonably necessary to protect legitimate interests that the person has who's relying on that term. But there are certainly terms now that we are aware of that would at least, you know, be a red flag requiring a review. These laws have been around for a long time. We're starting to get a, an understanding about what unfair terms actually are. The ACCC lobbied for the introduction of penalties because they weren't seeing businesses changing these terms. They kept coming across these terms in, in business to consumer and business to business contracts. Do you, have a, do you have any thoughts on why businesses haven't been quick to change their uh, their standard form contracts? Why, why we're still seeing these sorts of um, terms in contracts? Well, I think the fundamental problem is, is that it's really still quite uncertain what may or may not be an unfair contract term. And an unfair contract term in one agreement won't necessarily be one in another, depending on the sort of outcome that it can produce. So I think unless the ACCC take more actions or there's more, there's more guidance, I think the I think the default position of businesses is we'll just leave them in because, yeah, the, the, the consequence is that they're void and unenforceable as opposed to there being a financial penalty. I think that I think the financial penalty proposal is just fraught with danger. It still worries me that it's never really been tested as to whether or not the ability of a franchise or over the course of a 10 or 20 year agreement being able to change the system via changes to the operations manual, whether or not ultimately one day someone will say that's an unfair contract term. Of course, the very essence of being able to operate a, a franchise network and to have long-term relational agreements that extend for sort of 10 and 15 years is that there does need to be the ability to, to change processes and, and systems 
during that time. So if one day we get a decision where, you know, a unilateral change of a franchise agreement via a manual is deemed to be an unfair contract term, then I just don't know where franchising goes from there. I suspect to very short-term agreements. Fiona, what, do you have the same view? Do you think, is there too much uncertainty to introduce penalties for unfair contract terms? I think the uncertainty at the moment actually rests around how is that penalty going to be imposed? Is the penalty imposed merely because of the fact you've got what might be perceived to be an unfair contract term in your contract, or will the penalty be imposed because you're relying on that term and you engage in some sort of course of conduct in furtherance of a unfair contract term? Um, and there's, a, there's two very different approaches there. And at the moment, we don't know how penalties would be applied, um, whether it's by the mere fact you've got an contract, unfair contract term or whether it's your conduct in enforcing that unfair contract term. And the latter, I would say, carries a lot more sort of serious consequences for businesses and makes it much harder to sort of manage this risk. It's, it's an interesting point you make, Fiona, because at the moment, the unfair contract terms legislation makes it an offence. It's a breach of the legislation to include an unfair contract term in your contract. At the moment, the legislation doesn't extend to prohibiting acting in an unfair way or in, in an unjust way or in reliance on an unfair contract term. So maybe that's where the law's going. If, if, a, if a term is deemed to be unfair and then a party relies on an unfair contract term, Maybe that's what attracts the, the penalty. That's another pretty big leap if we if we get legislation which says that you can't act unfairly because that's going to that's going to cut right across all of the provisions around you know unconscionable conduct and duties to act in good faith, etc. Unfair practices is something that Rod Sims has spoken about previously and was talking about it recently at the announcement of the 2021 enforcement priorities, basically gotten through the legislative change to introduce penalties for unfair contract terms. They're now talking about legislating to prohibit unfair practices. So I think we can expect to see more of those types of conversations and calls for change in the next year or two. I think the UCT laws are very much at the moment anyway, they're very much focused on the actual term itself. Is that term creating an unfair situation, it's broader or it's more than what is reasonably necessary to protect your interests. It's, it's pointing directly to that term rather than the conduct around it. But yeah, as you said, Greg, we don't know where this will go. At the moment, it's focusing very much on terms and it looks like that still will be the case. It's how the penalty might be applied. But it's not just the penalties that are changing, is it? It's all of the, the suite oh, yeah. of remedies yeah. that are available to um, under the Australian Consumer Law are now going to be available to redress the wrong, if I can use that expression, um, where an unfair contract term is found or is applied against one of the contracting parties. Yeah, correct. Previous, well, currently, as the law stands, it's you get an order that the term is void and unenforceable and essentially wiped out of the contract. But going forward, or what's been touted as the change is that there'll be other, all the other remedies will be available. For example, an affected party who suffered loss and damage as a consequence of the unfair contract term can seek damages and compensation, seek injunctions to pre prevent the reliance of that term. There's all sorts of different remedies. And also, I think the ACCC is given white or propose that the ACCC will have wider powers as well to investigate and take appropriate action. The interesting thing for me as a dispute resolution lawyer in relation to what you've just outlined is that it does potentially open up this area for class action litigation. 
but you've got large numbers of people with small claims all of a sudden now being able to be grouped together. I could see this being of interest to the class action plaintiff firms. I haven't seen any commentary on that and I don't know whether the law addresses it, but every other breach of the, the consumer law you know, is susceptible to that sort of claim, you know, legally uh, susceptible but we just haven't seen it in practice yet. So I wonder whether it's where this might end up going. That'll certainly drive some changes if yeah, it does. It's been flagged that there'll be this introduction of a rebuttable presumption. And with the attention of that is that it'll be basically a rebuttable presumption that a contract term is unfair. If in a separate case, the same term or substantially the same term has been used by the same entity or has been used by a different entity in the same industry and declared by a court to be unfair. So all of a sudden you've got a situation where a term maybe in a, under one franchise agreement's been unfair. You can see that that potentially apply throughout all franchise agreements for that particular network and potentially across the industry sector more broadly. You know, if you had a term that that was in a franchise agreement that said, well, actually that term is un, unfair, contract term, all of a sudden other franchise systems might be faced with those issues as well, even if they have, you know, legitimate reasons to include such a term. Well, Greg, your operations manual example from a moment ago would fit squarely into that category, wouldn't it? No, I think I, I think it's a I think it's problematic. Of course, it's not just the franchising sector that is the subject of review and possible legislative change. We're also seeing it in the motor vehicle industry. What what sort of changes uh, are being talked about there? I think the most recent development in the motor vehicle industry is the Senate inquiry being led by Deborah O'Neill, which was originally an inquiry in relation to the conduct of of Holden in exiting Australia and and terminating its dealer agreements. You know, and that's and that is a that's a matter that the AGC took direct interest in as well. But a lot of the discussion in that sector is around the motor vehicle dealer relationship between the the OEM and the dealer. Which, which currently is regulated by the Franchising Code, but there's a real push for that sector to have its own separate code because they're saying that there's unique issues in the industry, which there are, and I'm not sure that, that there's a lot of disagreement about that, but what there is a lot of disagreement about now, and it's been a discussion that's been around for years and years and years, is what happens at the end of the term of a dealer agreement or a franchise agreement. And at the moment, you know, the right to use the intellectual property generally ceases and the dealer or the franchisee basically just loses the rights. The dealers are saying in those circumstances we want compensation for the loss of value in the goodwill of our businesses from from the manufacturers or the franchisors. Of course the current law as it stands it's very clear there's no obligation on a manufacturer in a dealer context or a franchisor to compensate the franchisee for the loss of the value of goodwill. Goodwill in a in a franchise context even in a motor vehicle dealer context you've got the brand which is owned by somebody else but you often hear franchisees saying well the customer relationships are mine and that's got to be worth something too. It's those two different views from two different camps about what goodwill actually means. It's an extremely good point because one of the other items for discussion or dispute is the ownership of customer data and databases. So you have in the motor vehicle context, all the manufacturers, they need to have a database of who their customers are because they've got um, warranty obligations to customers. Mm. On the other hand, dealers build very successful businesses around motor vehicle servicing and they have their own databases. 
and there's a tension as to who owns or who should have the right to use that data at the end of agreements. And that's kind of mixed up in that sort of goodwill question. But as I was saying, the, the law is fairly the law is clear on this. At the end of the agreement, there's no obligation on the franchisor to compensate the franchisee for the loss of the right to use the brand and or for the diminishment in the goodwill in the franchisee's business as a consequence of that. But it continues to be something that franchisee representative organisations are pushing. Where is this going to end up? It may well end up um, in, a in, a, you know, in a very real change in the law. Maybe they'll guarantee rights of tenure to franchisees for fixed periods. Maybe they'll be they'll introduce an obligation to compensate a dealer at the end of a term if, if, they, don't, if they aren't granted a new agreement. Those are pretty drastic changes. What's our timing on, on this? The Senate's looking at it at the moment. Have you got a prediction about when we, we'll start to see some, some findings and recommendations? I think the Senate will conclude their inquiry and they'll come out with far-reaching recommendations around compensating franchisees for goodwill, mandating arbitration as a, as a process to resolve disputes. But that doesn't mean those things will become law anytime soon. There'll be recommendations at the Senate inquiry only, and that's and that's where they kind of may start and stop. I think where we got to after the Alan Wayne inquiry with provisions in the code which say that a franchisor can't enforce a restraint if there's not a process for the provision of goodwill. I think effectively we probably already have it right, but I was one of those lawyers who said there'll, there'll never be a day where there'll be business-to-business -business unfair contract terms legislation. You know, freedom of contract, etc., will always outweigh those sort of notions of legislative intervention. But I was proven wrong then, and um, now I'm not so sure that we won't end up with some form of compensation regime in the years to come. I don't think it'll be this year or next year, but I think it's it's been on the agenda now for 15 years, and um, the the cries are getting louder and louder. That's it for today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you've got any questions, head over to the Maddox website where you can get in touch with either myself, Fiona or Greg. Thanks very much for listening and don't forget to rate, review, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you.